0: Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we continue through the Old Testament in the book of Judges. During this sermon, we look at how Israel continually rebelled and turned away from God, the roles of the Judges, and at some of the Judges specifically. You can join us by turning your Bibles to the book of Judges as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Flawed Leaders. Leaders.
1: Judges chapter two, if you're a visitor with us this morning, first of all, really glad that you're here. What we're doing is a little bit unusual um, in this series that we're in. Uh, we are taking a trip through the overview of the storyline and theology uh, of the Old Testament, showing those foundations that God laid. And so we're covering a lot of a lot of sections each Sunday. Today, uh, it is the goal to cover the entire book of Judges. So Judges chapter 2, Judges chapter 2, um, I've still been rejoicing all week just with getting to, getting to see the fruit from last Sunday, um, getting partaken in the baptisms and things, just so much joy, so much gratitude for what God is doing here, let us uh, never get arrogant And think that any good that comes here is because of something in us. Something the book of Judges will show us today is God can take some really wicked people and still accomplish His purposes. God is the one who saves. God is the one who works. It's our joy and privilege just to get to be used. And so we throw ourselves at His feet and long to be used. But He is the one who gets all of the glory. Judges chapter 2. Let's read this together, and then then I need prayer. So we're going to pray after we read this. Judges 2, beginning in verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochim and there they sacrificed to the Lord. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of one hundred and ten. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed Other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had spoken, as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. For they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers and following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said... Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Let's pray together and ask for God's help. Oh, our Father, God, we call out to you and ask for mercy. We come to your word, and in this section that we're looking at today, there are particular truths that you want us to know. Lord, this morning there are some hard truths. I ask God that right now you will open eyes, send your spirit, to cast light on your word that we understand, but also, oh God, to give us help in seeing the truthfulness of your word and to be affected and changed by them. Please humble us. God, I pray that throughout this morning, you'll call attention to each of our sin. Father, Lord, when you show us our sin, when you show us what you think of our sin, God, it is discouraging and disheartening and Lord, there are times where we feel like we just can't even come near you, but God, we thank you for what you also teach us in the gospel, that the work of Christ has made this access, Lord, that we have forgiveness and cleansing that you do not look at us in Christ with a scowl, but you open your arms and receive us. You embrace us. You call us to Yourself. You call us sons and daughters and and shower Your love on us. And so, God, help us to see all of this this morning. Our sin, but also the grace, the salvation, the forgiveness that You have made possible by Your Son. Please, God, help us in this time. Lord, I I need Your help to teach, feel so unworthy, O God, to preach Your Word only have access to you by the blood of your son. Please give me help to teach rightly and truthfully and in a way that's helpful and all of us, oh God, that we will receive your word humbly and with hearts there prepared and ready. So please, God, come now and glorify your name by showing us more of yourself, more of your truth and the great grace of Christ. And it is in his name we pray, amen. Very often in our sermon time, I tell you the beautiful stories of people's conversions. The transformations from darkness to life and from chaos into order and beauty. We love those stories. We need those stories. The Bible is filled with those stories. History is filled with those stories. One of the awesome things about God awakening God giving life through the message of the gospel as those stories never stop being produced. The gospel is powerful to open eyes. The gospel is powerful to redeem situations. The gospel is powerful to transform, to change. But it is also another reality of this world that there are stories that go the opposite direction. The discouraging stories. No, not of genuinely regenerated Christians leaving Christ. The Bible says that is an impossibility. First John would say that any who walk away from Christ, walk away from the body of Christ and and then leave altogether, what it says is they were never truly in. You know, our difficulty is we can't see the heart as God sees it. All we can see is the fruit of people's lives. But what that means is, There are those who were a part of the church family. We counted them as brothers and sisters because it seemed to be the case. But then who, over the course of time, drifted. And as they began to drift, their drifting picked up speed. They began to keep company with those who reject Christ. You know, and of course the Bible tells us that we are to be engaging with the world, loving and building relationships and caring and sharing the gospel and uh, giving kindness to our neighbors and such. But the Bible also shows this principle, walk with the wise and you will be wise. Walk with fools and you will become like them. 1 Corinthians tells us that bad company corrupts good morals and the Bible is constantly issuing the warning to us that we are to stay alert, we are to be vigilant, we are to be on guard against worldliness, against the allure of the culture around us seducing us away from Christ. We naturally become like those we spend time with And so God warns us about the slow infection of the world's ways, the world's thinking, and the world's loves creeping into our own hearts. When we come to the book of Judges, we are shown a season in Israel's history where the influence of the world around them swallowed them up and erased their distinctiveness. See, when we ended the book of Joshua, we were told that through Joshua's vigilant leadership that he led them to Follow and serve the Lord. Now we saw inconsistencies, we saw half-heartedness, but but Joshua worked in such a way with such diligence that he kept the people rallied and on a on a general kind of course. We pointed out some some nominalism and some and and some shallow kinds of faith, but Joshua labored in such a way that there wasn't a rejection of the Lord. He kept them going in the way of the Lord. But as we read here in Judges two, there came a day where another generation arose. And we see a period where there was a void of great spiritual leadership. And at the same time, you had this going on and the two are connected. Throughout the book of Joshua and in the early chapters of Judges, you see Joshua imploring the people to finish the work they had begun. God's command was to go in and take the land. And God said, thoroughly, Drive out the inhabitants of the land. You are the judgment on these nations who have acted so wickedly. Drive them out of the land and I want you to take possession of the land. God called them to get aggressive. God called them to finish the work. God called them to get serious. This was going to take great effort. The people came into the land and they took it. They became the dominant ruling people. But they did not fully obey. They, they left little villages all around them. We're told they took some of the people as slaves. This was not what God told them to do. And numerous times God gave the warning. We saw it there in Judges 2. God issued it back in the book of Numbers. God said, if you don't finish, if you don't follow through and drive the inhabitants out, they will become thorns in your sides, barbs in your eyes, and their gods will become a snare to you. If you let them stay in the land, they will eventually seduce you. Well, Israel let the people remain in the land. And over the course of time, we see a slow influence of worldliness. See, you remember God's plan. God's plan was God's people in God's place, living under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing, a kingdom. God's instructions was to come in and take the land, establish a culture of holiness. Have you ever thought of it like that? God mapped out for them how they were to build a culture, God gave them a law, He made a covenant with them. God mapped out for them a a system of justice. I mean, for crying out loud, God gave them a calendar, a a calendar filled with feasts unto the Lord and times of rest and times of work. God, God, God gave them how to worship him. He showed them this system of how to live in covenant relationship with Yahweh. He showed them how to develop a culture, planets revolving around the worship of the Lord. Instead, here's what happened. He said, go take the land, live holy. Instead, the land took them, swallowed them up, and seduced them to become just like its inhabitants. And then, here's what happens. As they drifted from God, you know, when you're only a short distance away when you begin to drift. If you're alert, if you catch yourself, if you're in the context of a church family, this is part of what we do. This is a big part of why God has us fellowship together as a church family. When you drift a short distance away and you have spiritual leaders or friends within the body of Christ who are helping you and calling you back, it's not greatly difficult to come back a, a short distance. But you give that trajectory a decade, and you will find some things that feel impossible. In the book of Judges, we see a season where there is a void of great spiritual leadership. The priests were not doing what the priest had been called to do. The people drift. And when they would drift from devotion to the Lord, sin would creep in. It always does, by the way. Listen to me. You never drift from closeness to God and remain morally neutral. Sin always makes an entry. Sin would creep in. And then greater sin. And then the chief of those sins that they would eventually come to was idolatry, the worship of these people's gods. And after a season of idolatry, God would then send judgment in his anger. The judgment was in the form of these foreign nations coming in to conquer and oppress them. When the judgment was severe, and the people had lived in misery for a time, they would then come to their senses. This is exactly why God sent the judgment. The judgment was always meant to drive them to their knees and drive them back to Him. They would realize their stupidity, their eyes would be open, and they would cry out to the Lord in repentance. Now, individuals would repent to different kinds of degrees. But one of the things we see is corporately, uh, as a whole, there would be a time that they came together publicly and together they would pray and confess their sins and they would ask the Lord for mercy. And friends, God always responds to repentance with mercy. God would hear their cries, feel pity on his people, And God would answer their prayers by raising up a man or a woman to come and deliver them. God would supernaturally aid this person. That person was called a judge. The judge would somehow lead an assault on their enemies. God would supernaturally aid the armies of his people in the battles. The the bonds would would be broken for a time. And then they would come and they would live in a season of gladness. And everybody was happy again. But then give it some time and we are a people who forget. The Bible has a lot of instruction to us on just simply remembering. We are a people who have to be reminded. We have to, we have to preach truths to ourselves again and again. They would forget. Some of the simple things about walking with the Lord daily would just begin to be forgotten. Very practically, things like instructing your children in the truths of God on a daily basis. Dads, we're commanded to do this, and you know how it goes. Dads, when do we do this? We do it when we're zealous. We do we do it when we got some enthusiasm. But whenever our spiritual life begins to stray a little bit, that's usually one of the first things that go. These ways that they were to remain close to the Lord begins to to drift and this trajectory would begin again. And over the course of time, this cycle would repeat itself. One of the keys to understanding the season of the book of Judges is this cycle. The cycle of drifting from God, falling into sin, in the midst of the sin, falling into idolatry. God would send judgment The people in misery would cry out to God in repentance. God would raise up a judge. They'd be delivered. Everybody's happy again. Give it 20 years and the drifting begins again. This cycle repeats itself over and over again in the book of Judges. If you read this uh, devotionally, you'll, you'll find this. A chapter after chapter after chapter, again, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so he sold them into the hands of the cycle over and over again. But, but friends, as you hear the cycle, do you see some of it in your own life? I mean, I, I certainly hope not to the extremes. Hope you're not bowing down to golden idols in your living room, okay? But do you, do you sense and do you see you're a nice tendency to drift from the Lord. Friends, one of the things we mentioned even in the book of Numbers that we got to keep reminding ourselves of as as we walk through the Old Testament and we see the sinfulness of the people, we must not sit here in churchy ivory towers, look down at these people with a snub nose and go, oh, look at those evil people. No, no, God is doing more than showing evil of one people. Listen to me, God is showing human nature here. God is giving you insights into your own heart. God is showing you things that are in us. Every Christian, I need you to hear me. Your heart is still prone to wonder. Whenever you turn to Christ, you were given a new nature. But listen to me, that old nature is not all the way gone yet. You new Christians who have just recently started walking with Christ. We try to explain this to you as part of, you know, coming to Christ and things, but still there can be misunderstandings. Sometimes new believers can come to Christ and think, now everything's going to go awesome. You new Christians, you hear me very, very closely. You are going to have seasons when the glittery pleasures of this world look very enticing and the wonder of your salvation fades. And there are seasons where you are going to have to give great effort to rekindle the fires of worship and zeal. Now, I want you to hear this, though. This is really important. It is not a given. It is not a guarantee that you will drift. I'm so thankful that God gives us the examples that he does. We do see many Examples in the Christian world that stand as warnings. I was grieved just a short while ago as I heard of yet another Christian pastor whose books I have read fall into great sin. And every time we hear those stories, there needs to be a a punch in the gut, wake up call, calling us, you be careful. But I'm so glad God also gives us the other examples I'm so glad God also gives us examples of believers who walk closely with Him for the duration of their life and they faithfully serve Him. But I want you to hear this as well. Those who walk with Him for the duration of their lives, they tell us it took everything they had. And they tell us they had to do uncommon things to get those uncommon results. Friends, you're going to have to do What is beyond what is normal if you are going to be faithful. I'm just just telling you, if you don't implement things like the disciplines of scripture reading and personal worship in your life, you're just not going to make it. Drifting is a real temptation. So listen to me, it is not guaranteed that you will drift, but it is guaranteed that you will be tempted to drift. Your zeal, your worship, your closeness with God is going to go through cycles and it's in those times where it's waning and at its low point that you need worship more than any other time. It's the times where Sunday mornings you feel the least like going and it's the times you need it the most. And it's the times where the closeness and fellowship of the body of Christ, you feed off of one another in this. All right, I'm getting off track a little bit here. Judges, this cycle is shown to us repeatedly. And each time there was repentance, God would raise up a judge. Now, we're still kind of in the introductory material. I'm kind of giving you an overview of the whole book in the beginning. And then we're going to get into some of the specific details. But who were these judges? What was their job? What was their, what was their role? Well, you know, in English, when we hear the word judge, we usually think of like legal matters. And there was some of that. We'll get to that. But that's not the main idea with these men and women. These judges were deliverers. They were leaders. I can even use the, use the word saviors. We understand, not in the sense of eternal salvation, but in an earthly kind of sense, God rose them, raised them up in order to bring a kind of salvation. And listen to me, these imperfect saviors point us to Christ, the righteous savior. Let's flip through a few verses. Uh, You're in chapter uh, 2 there. Jump to chapter 3. Look at verse 9 for a second. Look at the language that's used with a few of these guys. Uh, Chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 9. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer. See that word for the sons of Israel. Jump down to verse 15. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Jump down to verse 31 of chapter 3. After him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with a Oxcode, he also saved Israel. All right, so you see this kind of language here. rescuers, deliverers. And that language continues throughout the book. But not only were they deliverers in this sense, but these judges were also supposed to be spiritual leaders. When you look at chapter 2 again and you look at uh, verse 16 there, we, we read that section 16 to 19 where the Lord raised up judges. The people didn't listen to the judges. There was some general obedience in the life of the judge, but then the judge would die and the people would revert back. There was a sense of spiritual leadership. But listen to me, the judges were not merely leaders trying to produce prosperity. Their job was to lead them to trust and obey the Lord. Listen very carefully. The oppression that was going on by the foreign nations was simply the earthly difficulty that was a result of the root problem. The root problem is sin. The root problem is disobedience to God. The judges were not only seeking to deliver the people from the foreign oppression, the judges were seeking to call the people back to God, to spiritually come and be right with God. This is the great work of the universe. I don't care what role you have in life. I don't, I don't care if you, you know, you're a leader who helps people bake pancakes in whatever role you are in. The greatest work you will do is in aiding people spiritually. No matter how menial you think your life's work may be, God has greater purposes for you because you are living amongst immortals all around you. You have never met a mere mortal in your whole life. Every person you interact with is going to go on forever and ever and ever. And that means the condition of the soul is of infinite significance. So these judges, they were to deliver the people physically, but much more important, they were to bring the people back to God. Some of the judges did that. And others, like the sex-addicted Samson, not so much. The book of Judges covers a period of time uh, of around two to three centuries. And I give kind of an inexact date because we don't have an exact date. It's one of the places in the Old Testament that were not shown exactly um, when some things took place. But we do know this, it carried from uh, the end of the life of Joshua all the way until the days of Samuel. When we come into the the book of 1 Samuel and we meet Samuel the prophet. So the book of Judges covers this season of time where Joshua has died there's a void of great spiritual leadership until we come to the days of Samuel by the way Samuel we are told is what was one of the judges he is the last of the judges but the book of Judges itself tells us about 12 of these judges a lot of times it's broken up with uh, six major judges and six minor judges we believe that there were more but in kind of an overview way we're shown 12 of them Maybe one last thing that I want to tell you before we get into some of the specific examples is this. And it's just because I love this kind of thing. Judges has been called by scholars a literary masterpiece. The kinds of things that literary experts look for, like um, poetic structures, themes and sub-themes, beautiful language and symmetry. The book of Judges has like crazy level of literary skill and beauty. It wasn't written by any old chump. Yes, the Holy Spirit inspired this book like every other book of Scripture. Every book of Scripture gives the exact message that God wants. But we also see that God used the personalities of the human authors. And whoever the author was of Judges, we don't know, was apparently crazy brilliant. And there are some beautiful passages and symmetry and poetry that is in this book uh, as well. The book is, not going to lie, a bit dark. For real, it is one of the darker places in the Bible. Not the work of God, but God is showing some things. The book of Judges is kind of like a case study into human nature. What happens when the graces of God in the world, the ways that God restrains evil, things like law and order, Things like the presence of of believers in a society. What happens when some of those restraints are removed? The book of Judges shows some of the depths of human depravity. Some of the places that show the worst sin anywhere in the Bible is in this book. It has encouragement. So just like Ezekiel 16 that we read during the offering there, it was like really, really dark, really dark. And then did you catch the end? I hope you were paying attention. At the very end, God once again renewing his promise of the covenant. The book of Judges has encouragement. But the book of Judges sets us up to feel deeply our need for salvation. And therefore it points us to Christ. All right, so what I've done so far is kind of tell you the, the overview of the book, the, the cycle of drifting, judges, and deliverance. But let's talk through some of the specific judges. We cannot get to every single one of them, so let me this morning at least mention seven of them. We'll mention seven. Some of them, their stories are so quick, Shamgar only gets one verse. Okay, saw it in chapter three there. Okay, so you don't know much about him. He's one of the minor judges. But if you read this, they're more or less material given about others. But let me at least mention seven of them today to kind of help us understand the primary truths of the book. So beginning with the very first judge that we're introduced to, a man named Othniel. If you're in chapter 3, jump to verse 7 for a second here. We'll read through one, one brief section that shows kind of this cycle. And it's, it's kind of just a brief paragraph. So chapter 3, verse 7. Follow along. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. When the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushon rishathaim king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushon rishathaim eight years. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushon rishathaim king of Mesopotamia, into his hand so that he prevailed over Cushon rishathaim Then the land had rest 40 years and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then it continues on into the next account there. All right, well, let's notice a few of the things in this cycle that will help us understand this period of the judges. Um, number one. Notice that once again, we are shown the sovereignty of God as the decisive actor, the decisive one who is at work here. Humans are involved. Humans are doing evil. Humans are obeying. Humans are being being used in all this. But did you see how much active language of God is used? God sold them into the hands of their enemy. The world doesn't like language like that. The world doesn't like to think God can do things like that. That's, God's not supposed to do those kinds of things. The Bible doesn't ask you if you like it. It just kind of tells you this is the reality. He sold them. He gave them into the hands of their enemies. We'll even see times that God strengthened their enemies. God worked in Israel's enemies to build them up and then give them into their hands. And then God is the one who raised up the judge. God is the one who sent his Holy Spirit to come upon the judge. God is the one who in the midst of battle gave their enemies into their hands. God is the actor. God is the decisive one in the kinds of things that are comfortable to talk about, but also in some of the things that may leave us scratching our heads. God is the active one. Secondly, it's really significant to note there in verse 10, you saw that part there about the spirit of God coming upon Othniel. This is told to us over and over in the book of Judges. Okay? Now you and I in the New Covenant can look back and get more out of the book of Judges than even the original could. Okay, But we understand that this is the Holy Spirit. At this time, God had not yet revealed that He is the third person of the Trinity. But the Holy Spirit comes upon these Judges. He enables them, strengthens them. I think the most common work that we see the Holy Spirit do in the book of Judges is encouraging them, strengthening their hearts so that they feel courage, bravery, gumption, grit, toughness, a desire to go and do what the Lord had called them to do. The book of Judges probably has more theology of the Holy Spirit than maybe any other book of the Old Testament. But in the same way that the Holy Spirit would stir in their hearts. Friends, this helps us understand passages in the New Testament. Places like Acts 1-8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. What is one of the biggest things we need when it comes to our work in sharing the gospel? Courage. And this is what we see the Holy Spirit working and doing in this section we also see some times, you know, where, uh, where similar like when, when the lion charged Samson in this book and Samson was filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, what, what happened there? Well, you know, Samson didn't think, ooh, I, I feel the sweet, sweet presence of the Holy Spirit. This is nice. Okay, no, no. What does he feel? Rage, okay? Valor, courage, and he rushes forward and rips the lion to shreds, okay? There's your motivation in the gospel, okay? This is what God works for us. But we see that God is at work in Othnil. We're not told a lot of the details. He goes to war against his enemy and the Lord gave his enemies into his hands. Meaning, friends, very practically, God was working in the midst of the battle. God was making his people more skilled when they swung a sword or fired an arrow. God was weakening their enemy as they went to battle. We see times like in the Gideon account where God sent a terror, a dread into the hearts of their enemies. God works in such a way that the outcome is exactly what He wants. And then we're just simply told the land had rest for 40 years and Othniel died. God saved His people by raising up a deliverer. Also in chapter 3, We have the account of Ehud, which is many eight-year-old boys' favorite Bible story. And if you don't know why, you should read it this afternoon. We don't have time to cover it today. Chapter 4 brings us to the account of Deborah. Deborah's ministry is significant uh, for several reasons. Let's read a little portion of that one. Uh, Chapter 4, let's read the first seven verses there and see kind of the introduction of Deborah's ministry. Beginning in verse 1. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinuim from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, behold, the Lord, the God of Israel has commanded, go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and with his many troops to the river Kishon and I will give him into your hand. The rest of the chapter then goes on to describe the battle and what took place, peculiar ways that God brought about the victory there. One of the reasons why Deborah's account is significant um, is because she is a woman. She's the only female judge that were shown. Now we know there were more judges, so maybe there were other female judges, but this is the only one we're told about. I think there's some significance here for this. You know, it's sometimes a misunderstanding that can be had that because the Bible teaches complementarianism and it's okay, big word that just means God has created men and women differently. God has created husbands and wives to complement one another for us to fit together with strengths and weaknesses and roles. You know, the Bible teaches things like that the husband is the, the head of the family, and within the church, God has instructed that the, the pastors of the church are to be men. Sometimes there can be the misunderstanding because of that, that therefore ladies should not be in any kind of leadership role, but I think the Bible would disagree with that. Deborah fulfills a leadership role here, she was a prophetess meaning that the Lord would speak to her in visions and then she would then communicate this to the nation. We're also told that she was judging Israel. Here we get a little bit more insight into some of that legal part of what it meant to be a judge. She would be available and folks from the nation would come to her with matters of disputes Questions of justice, uh, counsel and things. And she was gifted by God with wisdom and insight. And she would hear their cases and give counsel from the Lord. She had a spiritual leadership position. And in that role, the Lord told her to contact this man named Barak. And tell him that God was calling him to gather an army and lead them against the enemy. And then we see in chapter 5, excuse me, in the rest of chapter 4, the victory. Something really beautiful is in chapter 5, by the way. In the same way that God inspired David to write psalms, which were beautiful songs of worship inspired by the Holy Spirit, God stirs Deborah and Barak to write one of these songs of worship. And then one last thing that I think is significant about Deborah's work. She never wielded a sword. She did, not, she did not deliver the people by going into battle herself. She was used of God to inspire, to rally a leader and an army to go into war and to give counsel. God used different gifts, and different strengths in order to accomplish his purposes. Well, when you come to chapter 6... You come to another one of the famous sections of the book of Judges. Chapter 6 shows us the account of Gideon. We meet this timid, fearful, weak, least of his clan, least of his family man, Hiding out in the dark from the Midianites. We're told this was a season where the Israelites were hiding in caves and out in bushes of the field because the oppression of the Midianites was so severe. God appears to Gideon, calls him into service, calls him a mighty warrior. Gideon spends a season of time doubting God, making God prove himself to Gideon in a way. And we see some grace that God gives to Gideon and gently encouraging him to get him ready for the work. But you probably remember the bulk of the story there. Through a series of events, Gideon has an army of only 300. They're going to face an army of what was possibly in the hundreds of thousands of Midianites and Amalekites who had joined together. Gideon is told to lead these 300 men into battle. But we're shown that God did a number of things to turn the tide. God put a dread of the Israelites and even a dread of Gideon himself into the hearts of the Midianites. On the night of battle, God sent Gideon down even into the camp and, and God let Gideon hear a Midianite soldier talking about his fear of Gideon. God encouraged him. God gave Gideon the battle plans. It would be something uncanny, kind of like we saw with Joshua at Jericho. The battle plan was... Gideon and his 300 men were to surround the Midianite camp all around carrying in their right hand a trumpet, in their left hand a torch with a clay pot or pitcher on top of the torch hiding its light. At the right moment at the command of Gideon, they were to all shout, blow their trumpets, smash the clay pots, let the torches burn and then here's what happens. The Midianites are wakened out of their dead sleep. There's already a terror in their hearts. They jump up and they hear shouting, Trumpets shattering, clashing, and jump out of their tents and see torches all around leading them to believe they are facing scores and scores of armies and that they are already under attack. God sends a spirit of confusion. Several times in the Bible we see God do this. They rush out of their tents swinging their swords and Gideon and his 300 men simply watch as the majority of their enemies destroy themselves and then Gideon sends for more Israelites and they come in and finish the work. Once again, God delivered his people. Once again, there was a season of rest. Once again, a short time later, Israel drifted. Now, the next way that Israel drifted is actually kind of ironic. You know, God worked in the weak Gideon in such a way that nobody should have seen Gideon as awesome, okay? The problem is they did. And kind of the chief of the Gideon fans was Gideon himself. Gideon really felt high and lofty after all these things took place. Gideon went on to become wealthy. Gideon went on to be revered. Gideon went on to become kind of like a king. Never given that official title, but we actually meet Gideon's son next. His son's name, Abimelech, which in Hebrew means... My dad is king. This is the name Gideon gave his son. Gideon made for himself an ephod. Now, An ephod was a, a, a garment worn by the priest. It was supposed to be reserved for the priest to set them apart with some distinctiveness. Gideon makes himself one. Walks around in glory and glimmer, you know, kind of kiss the ring sort of thing there. And actually what happened is, Israel, after Gideon died takes that ephod and worships it. They turn it into a god, kind of like a relic. So you, you've seen those scenarios where there, there are some of those, it still goes on today, who believe that these religious relics, that if you stare at them or you, or you get to touch them, that somehow you get good luck or blessing. The Catholic Church actually used to charge people to get to come in and stare at a relic and then gave them a piece of paper of how many years off purgatory they just got for looking at the relic. The same kind of thing was done here with Gideon's ephod, a superstitious, idolatrous kind of thing. And friends, once again, what I do want you to see here is this is not just the Bible saying, oh, those wicked people. This is the Bible showing something about human nature. We have a hair trigger towards idolatry when we are not careful we will slip into idolatry as easily as anything well in chapters 9 and 10 we follow a bit of the story of Gideon's son Abimelech a treacherous and horrible man a man who killed all of his brothers except one who was able to escape. He wanted to remove all rivals so that he would be seen as the one supreme one. And actually Abimelech's actions end up leading to a civil war. You know, we've seen Israel at war with foreign armies. And now we see this. The idolatry and the sin has led Israel to come to war with herself. The treachery of idolatry has created such a chaos that she goes to war with herself. Chapters 11 and 12 tell us the tragic story of Jephthah, another very flawed man risen up by God to judge. Jack, Jep, Jephthah, in a strange kind of event, actually ends up offering his daughter up as a sacrifice to God. Something that is just, entirely against everything that God has been saying. But there's something that we, we see there. You know, this is among the very evils that God told Israel, I'm sending you this land to go judge the peoples. They're a people who have sacrificed their children. God says this as like an example of how awful their sin is. And here is one of the judges who is so clueless about the things of God, who is so out of step with what pleases God. He thinks that this will honor God. We're being shown here the depravity. One of the things we see in the book of Judges is that even the quote, good guys aren't really very good. It's one of the themes of the book. God uses flawed, weak, sinful men and women to accomplish his purposes. Have you ever heard anyone say, you know, we got, we got a lot of, Christian cliches that just need to die? Have you ever heard someone say, if you aren't totally devoted to the Lord, He just can't use you? The book of Judges has another message. The book of Judges shows very flawed men and women still being used of God. Now, by no means hear the pastor encouraging you to just sin it up. No, this is not license for you to go do as you please because someone may argue and people sometimes start to play games with their own heads and think they've outsmarted God, okay? Sometimes people will say things like, well, you know, it doesn't matter what I do. The will of the Lord will be done. Well, yeah, but it ain't going to go well for you. Yes, God's will, he's going to accomplish his purposes. You can't thwart that. But isn't it better to do the will of God as a faithful servant rather than like a Judas? We see God accomplishing His purposes through even flawed men and women. But do take this encouragement. No matter where you are this morning, you're not too far drifted. You are not too unclean to begin serving the Lord even now. He offers forgiveness and mercy. By all means, run to Christ. Or maybe if you are a Christian and have drifted from him, run back to Christ. But never think you're in a position that you cannot be used at all. Well, we come to chapter 13. And it brings us to the most famous of the judges' stories. In fact, this is the last of the judges' stories. Samson The Samson narrative, of course, there's enough here to spend weeks on, but you probably know most of it. Samson was set apart by God from the womb to be a Nazarite, meaning uh, there was a special vow that God had given that some people could take part in. It had certain restrictions while you were under this vow. If you want to read about that, you can read in Numbers chapter 6. One of the elements of this Nazarite vow is that uh, the the worshiper was not to cut their hair while they were under that vow. That may seem odd to you. Read number 6. they will give some explanation there. Samson was supposed to live as a Nazarite for his life. This was the way he was supposed to serve the Lord. But Samson grew up and did not love the Lord. He did not obey the Lord. Samson fell in love with a Philistine woman. Now something God had forbidden. Now listen so that there's not misunderstanding. Not for any reason because of anything to do with uh, interracial marriage. Okay? That has sometimes been misconstrued from the Bible, okay? That is a misunderstanding. We see examples of the Bible of different people groups marrying and being blessed by God. Always the issue was this. God's people were not to marry idol worshipers. Just as the Bible tells us a Christian is not to marry an unbeliever. They were not to be intermarrying with this people that they were sent to drive out of the land. Samson, in defiance, falls for this Philistine girl. Tells his parents, I want to marry her. His parents say, isn't there a nice Israelite girl you'd like to marry? Look at chapter 14, verse 4 for a moment. Chapter 14, 4, look what is said. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. For he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Once again, let your mind be blown by the sovereignty of God. He is taking... Even Samson's sin and will use it to accomplish his purposes. Once again, Bible never gives a poll about whether or not you like that. You are just told he is sovereign. He does as he pleases and he is accomplishing his purposes. Samson marries this girl. They have problems. She marries someone else. They all hate Samson. Samson gets angry, kills a bunch of Philistines. This sets off a war between Samson single-handedly and the entire nation of the Philistines. We see numerous battles go down where it's the nation against one man. There's even one episode where with the jawbone of a donkey, he lays waste to an entire army. So that we do not misunderstand, we are always told his strength was the spirit of the Lord coming upon him. A lot of people misunderstand the story thinking he was just some buff, you know, Brock Lesnar UFC type. No, when the Holy Spirit left him, he was just like anyone else. In fact, the day came when he spilled his secret Of where his strength came from, this Nazarite vow, the Holy Spirit being upon him. Samson systematically broke every element of the Nazarite vow. And the last one was the cutting of the hair. And he finally spilled his secret to his idol-worshiping, God-hating mistress at the time. And she sells him out, cuts his hair. Samson becomes like any other man because the Spirit of God is no longer clothing him. Samson is taken a prisoner, and this once lion-killing, Philistine-destroying strongman is taken as the prisoner and entertainment for the Philistines in the temple of their god, Dagon. They gouge out his eyes. They mock him. They make him come out in their worship of Dagon, sort of to celebrate our god gave us our great enemy. But there came a day when a great feast to Dagon was being held and thousands of Philistines were all together under one roof. Samson prays for strength one last time. And the Lord gives him the grace. He pushes the pillars out from the building and Samson dies with his enemies. He actually accomplished more good in his death than he ever had in his life. Samson gave his life and delivered his people. Well, the book ends with a few more accounts. The rest of the book tells more history. And it is dark. It is sick. It is some of the most disturbing material in the entire Bible in the last chapters. In fact, there are some points made. And very similar to what we just read in Ezekiel 16, where God speaks to Judah and he tells them, you are like Sodom. There's a chapter in Judges where an Israelite town did exactly what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah and were shown something. This people who were intended to be holy have become just as odious as Sodom and Gomorrah, just as sinful as the inhabitants they were sent to drive out. A phrase is used and then repeated towards the end of the book. In those days in Israel, there was no king. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. Friends, the book of Judges highlights our need for a king. Yes, of course, it highlights our need for earthly leaders, but more than anything, it highlights our desperate need for spiritual leadership, our need for a righteous ruler. Friends, somebody who's better than these guys. We need somebody who's more faithful than Gideon. Somebody more honest than Abimelech. Friends, we need somebody even stronger than Samson. These judges had strength. Samson was incredibly powerful, but even he was too weak to save the people out of their greatest harm. See, it's one of the great irony of the book of Judges. These deliverers were raised up by God and they did deliver the people, but you know what they couldn't save the people from? Themselves, their own sin. Their own folly, their own hearts drifting and idolatry. Friends, we need someone. We need another deliverer. We need a savior. But somebody who can do more than just save us from some earthly circumstances. We need a savior who can save us from ourselves, from our sin, from the consequences of those sins. The book of Judges points us to our need And the book of Judges points us to the way that God has met that need. The book of Judges points us to Christ. There would come another. There would come another who would have a special birth announced by angels. There would come another who was a killer of lions. There would come another who was filled with the Holy Spirit. There would come another who out of the cavity of the beast would give honey to his people there would come another who would destroy the works of the enemy, another who in his death would accomplish the ultimate victory and who would free his people, but the difference would be a new nature would be given. Jesus, the great judge, the supreme deliverer, the savior giving eternal salvation, the righteous king would give his life for the salvation of his people. You know, we've said before, as we've been walking through this Old Testament uh, storyline, we said even back in Genesis 3, when mankind fell against God, God could have sent Jesus back in Genesis 4, but God chose to work in history to prepare the way for him. The book of Judges does a lot of preparing. The book of Judges shows a lot of our need, that we feel and comprehend the depths of our sin. And you don't really know true human nature until you see what we are really like when the graces and restraints of God are removed. What happens when law and order is removed from a society? Do you remember Hurricane Katrina? What happens when some of those ways that God works in the world We are told he restrains evil. What happens when some of them are removed? You begin to see real human nature. The book of Judges shows us a dark season that is a case study in real human nature. We are a people who need deliverance. We are a people who need forgiveness of our sins. We are a people who need saved out of our sins and set free with a new nature. We are a people who need some additional grace like the Holy Spirit coming upon us to aid us and help us in living obedience to God. And this is what Christ offers. Christ offers a salvation that is so much more than any that Samson could ever give. Christ offers you deliverance from the consequences of your sin He offers you a new nature now and he offers you eternal salvation where we will be cleansed forever. And friends, you need this. You need this salvation. You need what Christ died and rose again to give. Stop assuring yourself that you are a good person, that it'll all be okay. God says something different and the book of Judges illustrates it. You are a sinner. Your sin is a big deal, but God in mercy has provided. God raised up a deliverer. His name is Jesus, and when you turn from your sins and trust in Him, calling out to Him, asking that He would save you, you get the benefits of what Christ died and rose to give. Look to Christ, and you will be made right with God. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, help us, oh God, to see your truths. Help us, oh God, to be changed by them. Help us, oh God, as we leave, O oh Lord, that the effects of your word will continue its work in our lives. Bless the sons and daughters who are in this room that you will build us up and grow us. And Lord, any in the room who has not yet turned from their sins and trusted in Christ to be saved, Lord, I pray that you will impress upon them their need. They will see this is not merely some denominational thing, this is what you have said in your word. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Please give us your blessing as we leave. We ask this in Christ's name. God bless you.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled Flawed Leaders. Tune in again next week as we continue through the Old Testament. True Vine Baptist Church also invites you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND and visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.